Tonight we're dealing with Voice in the Wilderness is our study guide. Have you been doing your lessons? Filling them out? You learned some new things? Any of you in shock? No? Okay, well I'm glad nobody's shocked. You may be when we're done <laughs> after tonight. We have an amazing fact. Comes to us from the lowest point on earth, the Dead Sea. About 1,312 feet below sea level. It's called the Dead Sea because of the high concentration of minerals and salt. It's actually seven times saltier than the ocean. It's not able to contain a single fish, polywog, or tadpole. Nothing can survive in the Dead Sea because of its high mineral content. Vespian, the Roman emperor, he heard, or he was actually a general, he heard that if a person goes in the Dead Sea that they couldn't sink, and he wanted to test it. So he tied up some slaves and threw them in. And sure enough, they floated. He used the human guinea pigs to see what would happen. In spite of the fact that it's one of the lowest points on Earth and it's extreme climate, it's one of the most valuable places on Earth. The minerals there are worth billions of dollars. As a matter of fact, there's enough potash alone in the basin there by the Dead Sea to supply the world's fertilizer needs for 2,000 years, not counting the magnesium and the other precious minerals. You know, I also understand that the uh, Dead Sea was the area where John the Baptist had once lived. There was a special sect of very pious religious leaders called the Essenes, who spent their time guarding and transcribing the scriptures. They are the ones, we believe, who were responsible for storing the Dead Sea Scrolls in that arid climate not very far away. And John probably circulated among those people. Oh, one other little interesting fact, you know, for years people thought the Dead Sea had a chasm underneath it where all the water was pouring in because the Jordan River brings about six million tons of water a day into the Dead Sea, but the level never rises because it's 47 miles long, nine miles wide, and it evaporates faster than the water is able to pour in. Can you imagine that evaporation of six million tons of water a day from that basin? But this was the region where John the Baptist learn to trust God, a very desolate region, something like the Lord bringing the children of Israel into the desert to prepare them for the promised land. Sometimes the Lord takes us through the wilderness in order to prepare us for doing his service and doing his work. Amen. Bible tells us the Apostle Paul went into Arabia as he prepared for his life work. And this lesson is uh, very close to my heart because when the Lord got my attention, I was living in a cave up in a very harsh desert environment. People died from time to time up there and they'd get lost. I would work with the search and rescue to find them because um, you can't live very long without water. But I learned a lot about God in that environment. It's a sterile environment and it teaches you to trust in the Lord. Let's go to our study for tonight, dealing with our historical John the Baptist, the voice in the wilderness. Jesus said, speaking of John, that he was the greatest of the prophets. Now, you might wonder why the Lord would say that about John, because, of course, you've got Elijah and you've got Elisha. But Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, Matthew 11, 11, those born of women, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. The Bible doesn't tell us that John the Baptist wrote a book. He did not go to heaven in a fiery chariot like Elijah did. Why would the Lord say that? The Bible tells us that John the Baptist had a work very much like that of Elijah who went to heaven in a fiery chariot. Matter of fact, the angel told John's father 
that he would go forth in the spirit and the power of Elijah. One time the religious leaders came to John and they said, Are you Elijah? And John said, No. And then later, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, If you can receive it, this is Elijah. And some people wondered, is that a contradiction? John said, no, I'm not Elijah. Jesus said, yes, he is Elijah. Because the religious leaders were asking, is this Elijah reincarnated? John said, no, you misunderstand. Jesus said, yes, this is the one who was to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. The Bible does not teach reincarnation. That's why John said no, because they were asking the wrong question. Jesus said, yes, he has the work of Elijah. Now, you know, in the same way that God sent Elijah to bring revival among his people, and God sent John the Baptist in the spirit and the power of Elijah to prepare the world for Jesus' first coming, God is going to send an army of Elijahs, the 144,000, to prepare the world for Christ's second coming. Notice the prophecy in Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's not only talking about before the time of Christ, but before the second coming of Jesus. He's going to send the Elijah message. People will be filled with the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the world. That message is going around the world today because the Lord is coming soon. Time for us to quit. Question number one. What was one secret? We're going to look at the life of John the Baptist and Elijah a little bit. See if we can learn some lessons from their spirit-filled lives that we might duplicate. Amen? Number one, what was one... Oh, wait a second. Before I go any farther, can I please issue a disclaimer? This lesson is for those of you who have made decisions to accept Jesus. This lesson goes into the specifics of how to live a holy life. If you have not yet given the Lord your heart, this lesson is going to be very difficult for you to understand because first you must give Him your heart and then these other things become very easy to digest. So this lesson is for those of you who have accepted the previous invitations to invite the Lord into your heart. Now that I've made that clear, let's go forward. What was one secret of John's spirit-filled life? All right, answer, Luke 3.16. John answered and said, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. And let's go to the second part, John 3, verse 30. John said, he must increase, speaking of Jesus, but I must decrease. One of the characteristics in John's life was he had a spirit and an attitude of humility. As Jesus became popular and disciples and apostles gathered about him, some of John's disciples said, it's not fair. He's got more followers than you have. And John said, that's the way it's supposed to be. My job was to introduce him. He must increase, but I must decrease. You know, that's a very important statement. Matter of fact, I'd like to invite the world to say that with me. He must increase, but I must decrease. You know, that's the secret to victory. Christ must grow and increase in you. We all get in trouble because of selfishness. I, I, I. I must decrease. He must increase. And that's how you find happiness as a Christian. All sin is the fruit of selfishness. Question number two. So John was humble. Number two. Did John the Baptist read the scriptures? Was he a Bible-based prophet? Let's look at the answer. John 1.23. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as says the prophet Isaiah. And that means Isaiah in Greek. 
So obviously, if he's quoting the prophet Isaiah, and when you look at the statements of John in his preaching, there's only a few, he spends quite a bit of time echoing scripture from the Old Testament. John was very well acquainted with the scriptures. He had stored them in his mind. He may have been friends with those who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, that group of Essenes who were sort of the protectors of the oracles of truth. So he had a very high regard for scripture. If we would like to have a spirit-filled life as John had, you know, the Bible tells us that John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb right up to the very end. If you would like to have that kind of life, if you would like to do the work of John the Baptist in preparing the world for Jesus' second coming, then we need to have a personal relationship with the Lord through reading the Word on a regular basis. We need to pray on a regular basis. The Bible tells us that Daniel prayed three times a day. Daniel probably read in Psalm 55 where King David said, Morning, evening, and at noon will I pray. We need regular appointments to commune with God to build that love relationship. Now, you know what John said? I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. What does that mean? Back in Bible times when kings would travel, they would go with their chariots or their buggies. Now, they did not have highway departments to maintain the roads. And so when the kings would travel, they sent a crew of servants on ahead that would fill in the ditches, that would cut off the high spots, that would straighten out these sharp curves to widen the road to accommodate the chariot of the king. And they would announce the king is coming, the king is coming, and they'd fix the road and they'd prepare the people to receive him. This is the work of God's people today. The king is coming. We are to cut off the high places. There are some people who are proud and we're to share with them the life of humility. Some people don't think they're good enough. We're to build them up and fill them in. I heard one pastor say the job of a minister is you need to make the comfortable uncomfortable and you need to comfort those that are too comfortable. We've got some in church who are Laodicean falling asleep and you need to wake them up. Then you've got the other th people who think I'm not good enough and you need to comfort them, right? And so that's the balanced job of the minister is to uh, help people wherever their needs are. Chop down the high places, fill in the low places. Number three, was John the Baptist willing to witness for Jesus? John 1.29, yes he was. It says, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Part of our work as Christians is to invite people to behold the Lamb. Why is this? Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. One of the first steps, let me ask you, what's the first thing a person needs to do to be saved? I hear someone say repent, I always hear that. That's because the people said to Peter, what should we do? He said, repent. Well, that's not step one. Peter said, repent after he had shown them Jesus. Step number one is you must see the Lord. What was the process of Isaiah's conversion? Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. Then he saw himself and he repented. Then he saw his sin and then he repented. Step number one is they need to see the Lord in his goodness and in his glory. Isaiah saw the Lord in the year that his king died. Isaiah was a good king. In the year that his king died, he saw the Lord. You and I need to see the Lord in the year our king died. And when we see him on the cross for our sins, that helps us realize that we need to repent of our sins. That's why the people said to Peter, what must we do? And he said, repent. But first they need to see the Lord. That's what John did. Behold the Lamb of God. That is our work. Amen? Number three. Number four. Thank you. Was the straight preaching of John popular among the political and religious leaders? 
Luke 7, verse 30, the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of Him. You know, some people, uh, they say, Pastor Doug, if the Sabbath truth is as you say it is, if it's on the seventh day, then why don't the religious theologians and the intelligentsia and the professors, how come they don't see it? Well, friends, have things changed? When Jesus came the first time, did the religious elite, did the professors and doctors of the law, did they accept him? When he turned the world upside down, it was the fishermen who believed and received. Amen? Things are not going to be any different. God often chooses simple instruments and people with open hearts to do great things. And so if you're waiting for all the theologians of the world to endorse and embrace the truth of God's word, it's not going to happen. They did not do it back in the time of Jesus. They did not do it for John the Baptist. They're not going to do it for the second coming either. Moses said, do not follow a multitude to do evil. Amen? You've got to follow the word. If you're waiting for the biblical truth to be popular, it's never going to happen, friends. I'm telling you right now. You've got to make up your mind not to follow the crowd, but to follow the Lord. The religious leaders refused and rejected him. They crucified Jesus. And it goes on to say also it was not politically correct. Luke 3, 19 and 20. But Herod the Tetrarch being reproved by him for all the evils which Herod had done, he shut up John in prison. The government did not appreciate him either. You'll be hated by the church and by the state. You listening, friends? If you want to be an Elijah, a John the Baptist, you're going to be persecuted for your faith. Okay, number five. Everybody, take a deep breath. Here we go. Around the world, all at one time. Okay. I want to make sure that you are able to take this in. I don't lose anybody here. Question number five. Does the Bible discourage the wearing of jewelry in fancy clothing? Uh, the answer is yes. But now let's give you some scripture. Okay, 1 Timothy 2.9. In like manner also, and you call out the answers with me here in New York City. In like manner also, that the women, and of course men, adorn themselves in modest apparel. Not with broidered hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly array. 1 Peter 3.3. 3, Whose adorning let it not be the outward adorning of the plating of the hair and the wearing of gold. Now, I want to stop right here. Someone said, doesn't that mean you're not supposed to braid your hair? Is that a sin against braiding your hair? No. In Bible times, the prostitutes used to weave gold chains in their hair as sort of an advertisement. And so Peter is speaking about this. There's no sin in a woman braiding her hair, putting it in a ponytail. It's not what he's talking about. I'm saying that because a question came in asking if it was a sin to braid hair. Not with embroidered hair, but what is it we're supposed to adorn ourselves with? or a gold or putting on of apparel, but, 1 Peter 3, verse 4, 3 and 4, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Now, the Bible tells us your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Where was the gold in the temple? On the outside or on the inside? It was on the inside. The outside was pure white marble. On the inside is where all the gold was. The Bible says it should not be the outward adorning for Christians. It ought to be the inward treasure. People should be attracted to us because of what we have on the inside, not what we're wearing on the outside. And yet, even among Christians, and I want to issue another disclaimer. I don't think Christians should wear jewelry. 
I know there are going to be a lot of Christians in heaven that did wear jewelry. But I need to tell you plainly, and incidentally, if there's anyone watching or anyone here in Manhattan and they've got jewelry on as I cover the subject, don't stare at them, please. <laughs> we don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. But do you want the Bible truth? You want me to tell the truth even if it's not politically correct or popular? I'm going to give it... You don't sound very convincing here in New York City. I'm going to do it anyway. Isaiah chapter 3. Now you ought to read this. This is a passage where God talks about the daughters of Zion that are proud. And he identifies... And they're going to be lost, he says. You read it here. Isaiah 3 verse 18 to 21. In that day, the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet. Now I want to stop right here while you've got that picture on the screen. Are you aware that much of the jewelry in the world originated with pagan roots? People wore things to ward off evil spirits. When I went to India, you know, they've got a lot of the Hindus have the red dot in the forehead. It's to keep the evil eye away. And you go to Burma and some of these other countries and they're protecting their body from demons by putting these gold and minerals on their body. And friends, I think it brings more devils in than it casts out. It, the, nowhere in the Bible does it say that we're supposed to do this. He goes on to say, he'll take away their ornaments about their feet, the chains. Oh, well, that covers everything, doesn't it? The bracelets and the mufflers, that's the veils, the bonnets, the ornaments of the legs, the headbands, the tablets, perfume boxes, the earrings. I didn't hear you. The what? Is that in the Bible? The earrings and the rings and the nose jewels. You know, when I went to India, now, I used to study this for years. And when I mentioned nose jewels in America about 15 years ago, folks said, well, that doesn't apply. It does now. I just came back from India, and those dear ladies, they're beautiful ladies, and in my opinion, it, it, um, the Indian people are some of the most beautiful people in the world, but in my opinion, they ruined themselves. Some of these dear ladies, they'd get these two big old rings on the outside, and they look like running lights, great big old rings, and it scars their noses, and uh, it causes other problems. And, you know, the Lord says our bodies are his temple. What would you think of somebody who took a jackhammer and started drilling holes in the temple of God? What does the Lord think about all these wild piercing? Oh, wait, I want to finish reading. Did I? Wait, wait, back up. I, I didn't read that one. Back up. Did I read this? Yeah, I did. I read that. Okay, let's go to the next one now. Now, I tried to find one of the most outrageous things I could find so I could get a reaction. Because, obviously, you think, how many of you think that's going a little far? The question is, how far is too far? How many holes do we need in our body? The Lord gave you the appropriate number of holes at the beginning. No more, no less. He does not want you to add to or subtract from that number. Your body is the temple of God. And back in Bible times, when somebody died, they used to make, they'd mutilate themselves. When they worship pagan gods, they pierce themselves. Have you read what the prophets of Baal did? They cut themselves. The, the Lord wants us to regard our bodies as holy. He says, I am holy, you be holy. But back in Bible times, the pagan gods would have their people mutilate and scar and dangle and twist and torture the bodies. And that's what's going on in the world today. And a lot of it is connected with demonic activity, the rock subculture. Uh, well, I better stop right there. No, I'll, I'll, I'll do it just later. <laughs> the Bible says, 
Luke 16, verse 15. You are among those who justify yourselves. Jesus is speaking here. You are among those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Those things that may be very widely accepted and popular among churches and Christians, God says, they're an abomination. Our bodies are to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you some more scripture. I, and I'm spending, I'm going to camp out here a little bit. Turn with me to Exodus 33, verse 4 and 5. What did the children of Israel make the golden calf out of? Their earrings. So take the earrings out of the ears of your sons and your daughters. And it's in the ears of our sons and daughters today too, right? And the nose and everything else. Karen and I went on vacation and we saw this man walking around. He had a, a ring in his nipple and one in his navel and a chain between the two. And he was an old gentleman. That just seemed to make it worse because he had tattoos looked like wrinkled maps. And I thought, that fellow can get hurt playing volleyball. Do that. And this is what people are doing. It's, you know, I, I think it's, it's going too far. But let's read the Bible. All right. Exodus chapter 33. They made this golden calf. A lot of them died. The Lord ground it up and made them drink it. He said, if you want gold, it's going to be on the inside. And verse 4, when the Lord told them that they were under curse, it says, when the people heard these evil tidings, they mourned, and no man put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said unto Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I will come upon you in the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Therefore now put off thine ornaments from thee, that I might know what to do with thee. And the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. He was trying to prepare them to enter the Promised Land. They came out of Egypt and adopted all the customs of the Egyptians. You know what's happening to the church in the world today? We are little by little adopting the customs of the world. God wants us to be a pure, simple people. That's probably not enough. Go with me to Genesis chapter 30, what is it, 34, 33, 35, sorry. Genesis 35, that's page 57. Jacob is going to present himself before the Lord. And then verse 2, Jacob says unto his household and to all that were with him, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your clothes. He says in verse 3, And let us arise and go to Bethel, and there I will make an altar unto God, who answered me in the day of my distress, that was with me in the way which I went. Then they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods that were in their hand, and all their earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob buried. He hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. They buried him. We're going to present ourselves before the Lord too. We've learned from God's word that we are now living in a time of judgment. And if there was a time you could wink at what people wore in the Old Testament and years ago, it's not time to wink at it now, friends. Now God wants us to be holy. He wants us to be pure. He does not want us to conform to the world. You know, some people say, well, Doug, you're making such a big deal over a little issue. Um, a little bit of jewelry tastefully worn would be appropriate. How much is too much? You know, the reason, one reason that I, I don't even wear a tie clip. I know you might think that's fanatical, Doug. But let me tell you why. I don't want to do anything to make someone else stumble. Here's the principle. As an example, when I pastored my church in New Mexico of Navajo Indians, as a matter of fact, our last meeting, one of my Navajo members was here to visit me. He's working in New Jersey now. I don't know if you're aware of it, but the Navajos 
are born with the alcoholic propensity, all of them. Now, that's not true of everybody, but they studied it. It's a condition. If Navajo Indians drink, I live with them. I'm not being derogatory. It's a fact. They drink until they're out of money or they're out of alcohol or they pass out. It's a terrible, terrible plague on the reservation. And I've just seen wonderful, noble families. And when they start letting alcohol come in, it just destroys them. When I lived among the Navajos, suppose that I drank one glass of wine a week. Now, I might be doing it in moderation. It doesn't kill too many brain cells. But by my example, they could say, Doug drinks. If I drank half a glass of wine once a month, they could say, Doug drinks. How much wine do I need? I don't need any. There's plenty of other things to drink, right? And so, because I love my brother and I don't want to do something that would hurt him, I don't drink any. A person might say, well, Doug, I'm, just, I'm going to tastefully wear a couple of modest earrings. You know, I feel kind of undressed without them and, and maybe a ring or two. And I'm not getting carried away. Well, that's true. You could say that. But, you know, some people are insecure about their appearance. A lot of people are insecure about their appearance. Television and the movies accentuates that insecurity. We all feel like we're imperfect because everyone seems so perfect in the media, right? And some people think they can increase their value by covering themselves with more valuables. I went to a store the other day and there's this girl, she had earrings just all wrapped around the ear, you know, and I thought, this is going to go out of style. You're going to have holes all the way up and down your ear. I wanted to ask her if she was able to pick up any radio frequencies because she had so much metal <laughs> all around your ear. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Someone might say, what about makeup, Pastor Doug? I figure, what have I got to lose? I may as well hit this. I'm going to hit it hard. And we're going to move on, right? The principle for the Christian is you want to do what Jesus would do. I can't picture Jesus painting himself up so that, you know, he looks like a clown. My philosophy is if you've got so much makeup on that people know you have it on, you have too much on. You want to look as a Christian as simple and natural as you can be. You don't want people to be distracted with all the blue goo and the green and the sequins and things that they're putting into the makeup today. I'm not saying it's a sin, but I think the idea for a Christian is you should be as simple and natural as you can be. We ought to be clean. Amen? Our clothing doesn't have to be rags, but it should be modest and it should be simple. When Adam and Eve sinned, the Bible says they made aprons of fig leaves, mini skirts. God said that's not going to do. He gave them robes of skin. The words were different. God says you're not covering using the right material and you don't have enough material either. God gave them robes. Why do we wear clothing? To stay warm? No. I'm warm enough right now. Should I strip? Please, no. <laughs> modesty, is that right? And so one of the reasons we clothe ourselves is for modesty. Christians should be humble people. So when we start doing things to attract attention to ourselves, is that the spirit of Jesus? You know, keep in mind that in the Bible there are two women in Revelation. Am I right? Those two women represent the church, the true church, the false church. Neither of those women ever open their mouths. We know who they are by virtue of what they wear. We know who they are by virtue of what they have on. One of them is clothed with the sun, moon, and stars. She's clothed with a light that God made. Jesus said to the church, you're the light of the world. The world church, the artificial, is gold and pearls and precious stones and purple and scarlet and all this artificial man-made adornment. Now, one reason for jewelry is if you read in the Bible, it was their money. It says that uh, Rebecca put on a bracelet that was worth so many shekels. They weighed it because it was the money. And they would wear the money to demonstrate 
that they had it when they were in a safe society. When I worked, I do this little demonstration here to see if I can um, emphasize a point. When I worked among the Navajo Indians, they make the most beautiful turquoise and silver jewelry. Uh, have you ever seen some of that stuff? And uh, when I mentioned to them that it may be your money, but God doesn't necessarily want us to wear our money. I said, it's okay. Does, does the Lord have anything against gold and silver? Are we going to walk on gold one day? Matter of fact, it's the asphalt in the kingdom, isn't it? Would you wear asphalt? I shouldn't ask that question in New York City. Might start a new fad. Now, are you wondering sometimes, this is just a $1 bill, that would be costume jewelry. Are you wondering... Now, I'm doing this deliberately for a reaction. <laughs> what do you think angels see when people wear minerals? Do you get the point? God doesn't want us wearing our money. We're just demonstrating what we have. I mean, you think about it. Be honest, friends. I've seen people ooing and eyeing over a big diamond ring that somebody gets, right? Are they coveting their neighbor's goods when they do that? The Lord doesn't want us to be uh, bragging and proud about what we have because there should be a spirit of humility among Christians. All right, we probably need to move on at this point. I think I've probably said too much. I don't see anyone leaving yet. Question number six. Was there a connection between John's spirit-filled life and his simple diet? Answer, we've already talked about this. The Bible says, For he shall neither drink wine, Sam with me, or strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. Furthermore, it goes on to say, uh, oh, this is question number seven. So we know about alcohol. Number seven, why is God concerned about what we eat and what we drink? Judges 13, verse 7. Behold, the angel said to the wife of Manoah, Thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine nor strong drink, neither eat any unclean thing. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. He was going to be consecrated to God. He was not to eat anything unclean. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which you have of God. Our bodies are His temple. He wants to dwell in us. You and I as Christians, in what we eat and what we drink and what we watch and what we wear, we are advertising for Christ. Whenever you're in doubt, ask, what would Jesus do? And see if you can picture Jesus uh, doing some of the things that are popular in the church today. Number eight, what does the Bible say about worldly behavior? James 4.4, Whoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. 2 Corinthians 6.17 Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. This is New Testament. Touch not the unclean thing, and I'll receive you. Be separate. You know, a Christian has to balance being in the world 
without the world being in us. Psalm 1, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or sits in the seat of the scornful. We've got to know how to not walk in their ways and yet work with and witness to the lost. Jesus had that balance. A Christian needs to be something like a ship out in the water. Matter of fact, a ship on dry land looks unnatural, doesn't it? A ship in the water is very normal. But if the water gets in the ship, it goes down. You and I need to know how to be in the world without the world being in us or it's going to sink us. Amen? There's a lot of things in the world I could specify now, but I think you get the idea. 1 John 2.15, it says, If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Romans 12, verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We need to prove. That means we need to test. We need to examine. We need to evaluate what is good, what is perfect, what is his acceptable will. You know, this is a real struggle for Christians because we are living in the most worldly time in the world's history. There are so many sinful distractions. There is so we are being bombarded every one of our senses, especially in a lot of the Western world. So many diversions, too much idle time. A matter of fact, the same elements that preceded the fall of Rome, the fall of Babylon, the fall of these empires is now happening in North America. And I think we're on the very edge right now of a major disaster. I mean, I don't know what the Lord's going to do. I don't know if it's going to be an economic disaster or how it's going to come. But I think that there's going to be something catastrophic that's going to happen because um, there's a lot of sin in the world today and it's a real shame. Incidentally, from that catastrophe, whether it's a financial disaster or military or natural disaster, people are going to run to the churches out of fear and out of that will evolve a political, religious power that's going to bring about the final events. That's why you and I need to know this is about to happen and we need to follow the word and not follow what's going to be politically correct. Number nine, what, what should a Christian choose to think about? Philippians 4.8, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on those things. God wants us to think about what's good. Now, keep that in mind when we read this next one. Psalm 101 verse 3, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. In our culture today, a lot of people are turning into a little more than bird brains because they spend so much of their time soaking up the information on the television and the videos and the movies. You are what you worship. Your worship will be composed of what you give your time to. That's why we keep saying the Sabbath is so important. It means giving my time to God. That means you worship Him. When people spend the majority of their time watching videos and watching television, that box in their living room or bedroom becomes an idol that they worship. They are giving their life to it by sitting before it and by beholding it. And I think that most of us know the majority of the programming that you'll see on television is not calculated to bless you. It's designed to get you to buy products. Are you aware that TV does not exist for the purpose of educating and preparing you for heaven? 
The purpose of TV is to captivate your attention and then bring on the commercial. The sponsors want to sell their products. Because our society has been so desensitized by shocking programming, the programmers, the stations, the networks have to keep resorting to more salacious and more wild and more crazy things to keep people watching long enough to sell the products. They can't go back to that old stuff they used to have anymore because, you know, we've become numb to those things. And you look at the, some of the stuff that's on daytime television. What do they call these talk programs where they interview all these deviant, kooky people, you know. <laughs> Lady says, I left my husband and married a sheep. And just <laughs> they interview these people and it's, it's all this bizarre, shocking, ludicrous stuff. It's like I told you, these supermarket tabloid magazines, the reason they're popular is because they are so shocking and so bizarre. People say, I know it's not true, but it's got my attention. And people say, well, I don't believe this stuff. It's disgusting. But they watch it. You worship what you give your time to. You know, we would never consider doing some of the things that are done in the movies. We wanted murder. We wanted rape. We wanted kill. Uh, we don't even lie. But if you find pleasure in watching other people do those things, you are participating vicariously. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that not only will those who do those things be destroyed, but those who have pleasure in them that do them. And here we've got a whole culture now who thinks, I'm, I don't do those things. I enjoy going to watch Terminator and Friday the 13th and all of these the terrible programs. I don't think Christians ought to go to the movies. I don't go to the movies. Some people say, no, I don't go to the movies either. I wait until Terminator comes home so I can enjoy it with my family on video. <laughs> I get the video and take it home because once it's on video, it's baptized and it's a lot cheaper then. The Bible says, I will set no evil thing before my eyes. You become like what you worship. It's a pretty scary thought. You become like your idols. Look at some of the idols on TV. Number 10. I'll talk more about this as we progress. What type of music will a true Christian listen to? What kind of music will a true Christian enjoy? The Bible says, He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Then it goes on, uh, 1 Samuel 16, 23. And it came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, incidentally, when it says an evil spirit from God, it's because God withdrew his spirit and an evil spirit came, that David took his harp and he played with his hand. And the Bible says, so Saul was refreshed and was well and the evil spirit departed from him. Well, does the Bible teach that the right kind of music can dispel evil spirits? Would it stand to reason that the wrong kind of music would maybe invite them? You know, for our friends who are watching across the world, we are up here on the seventh floor in the Manhattan Center, seventh heaven up here. There's another auditorium below us. Matter of fact, the ceiling of that auditorium is directly below the stage. And as I speak, there's a rock concert raging down there. How many of you in our audience can hear the drums? You have to turn the camera around, hold your hands up there. You get the, you don't hear it on the microphone, but we hear the drums downstairs. And you ought to know, well, let me ask this question. Get an audience shot, Lanny. I'm going to ask another question, all right? How many of you agree that there's some music that is wrong and diabolical Christians shouldn't listen to? Hold up your hands. Virtually everyone agrees with that. Now, you know where we disagree? Where do you draw that line? If you ask the people 
They live down in the south. They say, well, that rock music, them hippies on drugs, that rock music's awful. Country music's from the Lord. Right? <laughs> Country music. You ever listen to that? I'm sitting here in the bar getting drunk because she done me wrong. Left me with all the kids and the cats pregnant and depressing. Right? I've discovered that everybody thinks that God likes the music that they like. Nobody wants to draw the line in the same place. And you know, it's, I'll admit, friends, there's music I like that I know the Lord does not approve of. I'll admit it. And I do not trust myself listening to that music. There's many times I've had to throw things out because I saw what the music did with me or change the station on the radio. I go to the supermarket. You know, they play these old songs on the PA in the supermarket. I come out and get in the car with Karen. I'm going, yesterday love was so trendy. She goes, what are you doing? I go, oh, he's able, he's able. I go. Because <laughs> the only way to get that bad song out of your head is to overcome evil with good. You got to start singing a good song. But I'm just like you, you know, I, I'm attracted carnally to some of this music that I know is not good. You see what it does to you. And a lot of the music of the world is very sexually suggestive. It's got this hecky, heavy syncopated beat and, you know, just I've seen it here even in New York City. We've got this problem in Sacramento. These kids drive down the street. The car barely runs, but they've got an amplifier in that car that is sufficient to drive a Led Zeppelin concert in a football arena, right? And they're going down the street, and you feel sorry, because you know they're going to be deaf in two years. And they're driving down the street, and you hear, kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. And you can hear them coming up the street. The car alarms are going off as they drive by. Those motion detector alarms, store windows are going in and out. I've had them pull up next to me, you know, and I'm in my little Subaru. And uh, pull them ne next to me, and they're in their car. And, boom, 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 boom. and I figure, you know, I can witness too. The Bible says that, you know, if they can be a fool, I can be a fool for Christ. And so I listen to tapes of different preachers and Bible tapes. Any of you ever heard C.D. Brooks preach? He kind of shouts the gospel. And so I'll pop in a C.D. Brooks tape and I'll roll down my windows and open the sunroof and I'll turn the thing all the way up and C.D. Brooks will go, John the Baptist said, repent! And you'll see that guy over there and he's checking his EQ on his amplifier. I figure, you know, if they can offend me, I can get even with them, right? So Christians ought to be careful what they listen to because music has an effect on your spirit. It can, God's music can ennoble and elevate you and the worldly music can bring out the baser passions. It can be depressing and puts you in a melancholy state. And uh, so you need to, con and you know, you might need to exercise a little self-control. Some of you might need to go home and throw away some of those tapes and CDs that are dragging you down. Do something practical. Number 11. Is dancing good recreation for a Christian? We're leaving no stone unturned, are we? Answer. John, 1 John 2, 6. He that saith he abide in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Jesus gave an example that we should do as he has done. Now, is it okay to dance? Sure. If you're going to dance the way David danced before the ark, if you're going to dance the way Miriam danced with the women when they crossed the Red Sea, if you're going to dance, you notice, if you go to the Hebrew culture today, go to Israel during their festivities and some of the Orthodox weddings, the men dance with the men, and it's like a folk dance. The women dance with the women, don't think what you're thinking. It was innocent. 
And that's the kind of dance that Miriam did. The dancing that is popular in our culture is very syncopated and it's very sexually suggestive and there, I have no rhythm, don't worry. And they're wiggling and gyrating those parts of the anatomy that are calculated to arouse the lower passions of the opposite sex, right? Can you picture Jesus in the discotheque? I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but I'm just trying to get you. Can you picture that? Come on. So if you want to follow Christ, you want to be a good witness. What would you think if you saw Pastor Doug? You walk by a dance hall one day and you open the door and there I'm in there with no rhythm trying to do that dance. You'd know that there was, you, you would lose confidence instantly, wouldn't you? It also goes on to tell us in Titus 2 verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. You know what that means, friends? There may be a battle involved in denying these things. I've been a Christian for 20 years, and you know, I struggle just like you. Every day, I need to make conscious decisions to deny my lower nature, the natural tendency we all have. I must make choices. Paul said, godly apostle Paul said, I die daily. Now, friends, it's not enough to die daily. You must be born again every day, too. Otherwise, you've got one of those experiences where you're more dead than alive. We got those people out there that die every day, and they're just, they look like they're baptized in pickle juice, right? And you want to have a born-again experience. Not enough to be crucified with Christ every day. You need to be resurrected every day also. Amen? The Bible tells... Oh, wait. I didn't finish this. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Some people say, well, Doug, not in this world. Nobody's perfect. Yes, in this world. You're supposed to live godly. That's the whole purpose of Christianity. They have these bumper stickers that Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. I respectfully disagree. We are more than just forgiven. We are different. And you'll never convince me otherwise. Because when I came to the Lord, I was drinking and cursing and lying and using drugs and living immorally. And God gave me the victory over those things. He started changing me and he can change you. And I've got news for you. I'm a whole lot happier now than I was back then. The Bible says we need to learn what it means to be dead to sin. And that might involve burying some of those practices. You might have a formal service. Some of you might need to go home and you make your toilet bowl an altar. And you take your cigarettes and tear them up as an offering. And you, I heard someone say, hey, Doug, I got some good whiskey at home. You want to just pour that away? It's very expensive. There's no such thing as good whiskey. It's an oxymoron. Like jumbo shrimp. Oxymoron. Like little sin. Or Christian rock. Another oxymoron? Rap music? There's an oxymoron for you. Make your toilet an altar. Pour it down. Flush it. And say to God be the glory. Amen? Ask Him to give you deliverance over these things. You have to do some tangible things in your life if you want to follow Jesus. You need to leave some things behind. Amen? Number 12. Will a Christian play the lottery or gamble? What's the Bible say? For the... Love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Some people go to Las Vegas and Reno thinking they're going to hit it rich and they end up, way, end up going away empty-handed. You know, we live in Sacramento not too far away from those places. And... Uh, We've heard tragic stories. I met this one man that was $60,000 in debt. He had mortgaged his home. He had mortgaged his retirement. He was like 55 years old because he, had, he was addicted to gambling. His wife and his children all left. He could not stop. I've met families. Father took them to Las Vegas for a vacation. He went into the casino, just wanted to 
try it out a little bit. He spent the whole vacation money, had to walk back out to the car and said, we have to go home. And they had to go to the church and get money for gas. They lost everything the first day of their vacation. It's an addiction. And I told you, anything a person can get addicted to, Christians should not participate in. And the lottery. Lottery is government-sanctioned gambling. The lottery is designed by the government to get the welfare money back. That's largely what's happening. It's the whole thing is designed to just get the money back from the people who really believe that advertising that they're going to be rich. You know what your odds are of winning the lottery? You've got a better chance of being bitten by a shark on dry land. <laughs> now, it could happen. I guess there are some people out there that win, but the majority of people go into debt. You'll get rich if you take that money and put it in the bank and leave it there. Let it draw some interest. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. We command you that if anyone would not work, the same should not eat. The Bible says Christians ought to be industrious. Part of the Sabbath commandment says, six days thou shalt work. God wants us to work. We always think about the rest part. Furthermore, he that makes haste to be rich shall not be innocent. Christians ought to guard against these get-rich-quick schemes. And they've got all kinds of things that are going around. Multi-level marketing and people are getting involved in these programs where you've got to buy a bar of soap for $25. But it's special soap, they tell you. It'll make hair grow on anything. I've heard these things before. Yeah, oh yeah. And it's soap. Now, I don't, there are probably some companies that use this technique that may be legitimate, but guard against any get-rich-quick scheme. The best way is you be faithful in working, you pay your tithe, you give your offerings, God will bless you, He will prosper you, strive not to be rich. Solomon says they make wings and fly away. Number 13, what should be the aim of God's people today? What should be our goal, friends? The Bible says in 1 John 3:22, we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. We want to please God because we love Him. Amen? Amen? Furthermore, fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. We want to obey God and keep His commandments because we love Him. Which brings us to question number 14. What makes it easy to obey God in matters of lifestyle that are discussed in this lesson? I've told you this lesson is for those of you who have accepted Jesus, you love Jesus, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you don't love him, you can't keep his commandments. You know, we are living in a time just before Jesus' return. We are living in the age of Laodicea when God's people are being judged. The anti-typical day of atonement. The investigative judgment before the return of Christ. When I was about 15 years old, a friend and I took his parents' BMW out for a ride on my dad's island. And as we were driving around the island smoking pot, I was a hippie, got into a lot of trouble back then. I asked if I could drive. He was letting me drive. We were shotgunning the pipe into the cab of this car. Now, I don't know if you know what that means, but we put the pot in, we got it lit, and then we turned around and we blew in the pipe, and the smoke blows out the back, and we filled the car with pot smoke so we could just drive and breathe it. A lazy way to get high. There was so much smoke in the car that pretty soon it obscured my vision. And I crashed my friend's very expensive, my friend's parents' very expensive BMW into the back of another millionaire's car that lived on the island. My dad found out. I mean, first thing we did, we jumped out of the car and we're trying to swish all the smoke out of the car. We threw the pipe into the bay and pretty soon the police came and 
My friend cut his knee. I felt really bad. He hurt himself. Did a lot of damage on both cars. I had to go to court. Well, the day I was driving around, I had long hair, scruffy beard, dirty jeans, tie-dye shirt. I mean, I just, I looked like something the cat drug in. You should have seen the transformation that came over me when I had to stand before the judge. Hair was cut and comb, clean clothes, nice shirt on, tie, because I realized I was being judged. I needed to get my act together. Friends, the party's over. Jesus is coming soon. We need to realize that we're living in the sight of a holy God and we will give an account to God for the lives that we live. God is calling us to live like John the Baptist and like Elijah, to do the work they did and to live the lives they lived, to be a holy people. And it's possible for you and I to do that. What's the reason to do it? The answer is, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. When you love Him, friends, it's a blessing. I hope that you're willing to present yourself to Him as a living sacrifice. It's my desire that you'll make a decision tonight to receive these words from God's word into your heart. Psalms 40, verse 8. I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. You know, being a Christian is first love and then law. We do his law because we love him. The devil has all these obstacles in our path that are designed to prevent us from following him. But all things are possible with God's grace, friends. You know, up in the mountains where Karen and I live, we have this dirt road for about two miles that we take care of that goes from our gate to our house. And in the middle of that road for years was a great big burnt off black stump. And we had to stop going downhill for years and drive around that stump. And one day I was fixing up the road with a bulldozer. I drive bulldozer. And I stopped and I looked at that stump. And I said, I am so tired of driving around that thing. I started digging. And I'll tell you what, I had no idea how big the anchor of that thing was and how deep the roots went. But I was digging and digging. Pretty soon Karen rode up in the car to see what was taking me so long. There's this great big old crater around the black stump. And it took me hours. But finally, by God's grace, I pushed and I pushed and I rammed it several times. And finally it began to bunch. Lifted up the blade, it began to groan. And I rolled this great big old mass of black pile of rock and dirt and wood off the hill out of the road and I smoothed out the road and you know what every time now when I drive by that spot I just rejoice that I stopped and took the time to get that obstacle that black stuff out of the way some of us have got these obstacles in our lives John the Baptist came to clear a highway for the king and you and I may have things the Holy Spirit is convicting us about that we would want to follow him with all of our hearts that we would want to remove these obstacles is that your desire friends Question number 15. Why is the Christian life such a high calling? 1 Peter 2.9, say it with me. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Friends, are you willing to be a unique voice in the wilderness? Is that your prayer? Father in heaven, Dear Lord God Almighty, give us the grace to be willing to do your will, to set aside these things that stand as an obstacle, obscuring the view of Jesus. We pray in his blessed name. Amen.